The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Finding the right fit at work when you're neurodivergent can be difficult. You probably need to work differently than other people, And it might take some time to figure out how you work best. Finding the right community can be hard, too. And that's why for all the negative stuff that social media and our online world can put out there, a lot of which we talk about on the show, there are some pretty wonderful things. Like the fact that me, a socially anxious introvert, has managed to find a whole wonderful community out there. And today's guest is someone I've only met in person a couple times, but I really feel like I know her because of our similar experiences, some of our shared challenges, and the communities online that we've been part of for a long time. It's something I'm super grateful for. Amanda Morin is a speaker and author who focuses on issues of neurodiversity. She recently began working at the Jed Foundation, a nonprofit organization that focuses on mental health and suicide prevention for kids and teens. But when we spoke, she was in the midst of an entrepreneurial journey, an in-between space after working at an organization for a while. And that's where I begin our conversation. You left steady employment to start your own thing. And I want to hear about how you decided to do that and, you know, if your anxiety had a role in that and and how it's manifesting. So anxiety played a part in both making the decision and now how I'm coping with the change too. Mm -hmm. So part of it was I loved what I was doing, but I was also feeling kind of burnt out on doing it constantly and for so many years, right? I was, I was part of an organization for from the ground up for almost a decade. And I realized that I had climbed this kind of ladder for lack of a better way of putting it and ended up as like a name, like people know my name. I go to conferences and people say to me, you're Amanda Morin. And I'm like, I I know that. How do you know that? Right. And, (laughs) and, And I ended up realizing I'm so uncomfortable with that. Sometimes I just, it's not where I expected to end up. And if the pandemic has brought me anything, it's brought me this ability to reflect on what I really want, really what I want to be doing, mm-hmm. what's important to me. And what I realized is I've missed out on so many things at home that I hadn't been a part of because I was doing so much traveling and so much speaking and sort of like appeasing this idea of Amanda Morin and not thinking about who I thought that was. Mm-hmm. And I realized how anxious I was about trying to make all the pieces fit, right? Trying to make work work. That sounds funny. Trying to make, trying to make my career work, trying to make my family work, trying to make my sense of self work. 
and I needed to take a step back. But I was terrified. I mean, I'm just going to say that out loud. I was terrified because it's the unknown. And the unknown is always really unsettling to me because I want to know all the things. But I think not knowing was less anxiety provoking for me than deciding that I get to choose who I am right now. So it was worth it for you to feel the anxiety of not knowing because choosing felt so powerful? I think four months in, I can say that, right? So four months in, I can say, yes, that was worth it. That anxiety was worth it. I think if you had asked me two months ago, I'm not sure I would say the same thing because I was still trying to figure out, did I do the right thing? You know, am I abandoning my coworkers? Am I abandoning something that I, I loved and helped to build? Am I making a mistake that's going to change my career in a way that I didn't anticipate? But now I'm realizing like I get to define who I am. And while that's anxiety provoking, because it means I'm also hustling for, you know, new business. Like, that sounds really weird, right? But it's like, I'm, I have to do the, the front work again in a way that I didn't have to do for a long time. And that's meeting new people <laughs> and it's putting myself out there and it's having a lot of conversations, which is hard for me. And yet I'm actually really enjoying it. I'm meeting really cool people. I am sort of expanding my viewpoint of what I can do in the social impact space. And once I get past the, I don't, you know, once I get past the, I really should cancel this phone call because I'm not feeling like I can do it and actually push through and do it. It's really a gift to realize that people's vision of who I am is so much more kind than my own vision of myself. Yes. And every entrepreneur needs a moment, every anxious entrepreneur, maybe to check in and think about how other people see me versus how I see me. Yeah. I have been going through that too, where I, you know, I'm in a huge life transition and I gave up the work that had defined me for over a decade. Yeah. And I feel so much less. And I literally need people to be like, Maura, look at how the world sees you. Look at how I see you. Like literally tell me that I deserve better when I'm like applying for a job that is like so not, <laughs> so not right for me. So I hear you and I'm curious, and I don't know the answer to this, so tell me. Sure. When did you start publicly saying that you and your family are neurodiverse? Wow. <laughs> I'm trying to think about that. I started publicly talking about my family being neurodiverse, neurodivergent, probably 10 years ago. Whoa. The kids in particular, because it was, I was going through a parenting component of it. But in that, I realized if I'm going to talk about the family, I had to talk about myself too. And I will be honest in saying like, I only revealed little pieces at a time, right? It, mm. it wasn't until probably two and a half years ago where I was really frankly honest and said to people, okay, so, you know, you know, i talked about having sensory processing issues. You know, I've talked about having anxiety, but what I need to tell you is like, I actually have OCD, like diagnosed OCD. Mm. And that's a big part of who I am and how I conduct my life. And, and of course it's one of the reasons that the unknown is really hard for me is because my brain loops and loops and loops all of these kinds of things. 
And one of the transitions for that two years ago was because my children are older Mm -hmm. and their stories are now theirs, right? Yep. Yep. And for me, if I wanted to live in this space, this space of neurodiversity, this space of disability, this space of education, I needed to be honest about who I was and own my own story and how that connects to everything I do and let the kids have their stories to themselves. I'm a really big believer that that's theirs to tell now, right? And even when I spoke about them, I didn't speak about their challenges or what they were. I I spoke about like how it was hard for me to figure out how to be a parent, right? But it was really a deliberate choice for me to be able to say, now it's my turn to talk about what it's like to be a successful, high achieving woman while also managing all of these pieces of me that people don't see. Do you think that coming into the fullness of that had anything with the decision to sort of go out on your own and and literally tell your own story? Probably. Yeah. I, you know, it's so funny. I didn't actually, that hadn't, you know, had been articulated. And then as I was saying that out loud to you, I was realizing that there's, it definitely coincided, right? It definitely coincided in part because it was so resonant with people. Until recently, there have not been a lot of women in the workplace talking about being neurodivergent, talking about what that means. And I think especially on a leadership level, we need to be able to show and talk about it because I don't want people to think that there are limitations to being successful Mm -hmm. because you have challenges that need to be accommodated for. Let's just go to basics. Mm Mm-hmm. How do you define being neurodivergent, neurodiversity? What does that encompass? So it's different for different people, right? But it's really sort of the aperture of neurodiversity is expanding. It used to be a very specific term that was used in the autism community. And it was Mm -hmm. about looking at the differences in the way people interact with and experience the world from what was considered the norm and what people can't see is I'm doing the the finger quotes norm, right? <laughs> and it's grown to expand to think of the different ways people's brains process information differently, like dyslexia, ADHD. Some people will say OCD. Some people will say autism. There are all of these different kinds of, I would say to some degree, invisible, what we call invisible disabilities that have expanded that. Mm-hmm. To me, the component of this that's important, because I think a lot of people say, well, everybody's brain is different, right? Everybody's brain is variable. Sure. The piece that's important to me is that sometimes the way my unique way of thinking and experiencing the world gets in the way of me moving forward or doing something that is probably a little easier for somebody else who experiences the world more typically. Mm. So for example, I would say, In a room where there are lots of lights and lots of noise, I am not a productive person because I'm very distracted and my whole body goes into shutdown because it's too much sensory information. For some people, they thrive in that kind of environment. For me, it's not something I can do. And I, for a long time, tried to and tried to hide that and couldn't anymore, just couldn't anymore. So, you know, I think of neurodiversity somewhat like biodiversity in some ways. So if you think about like tulips, you have pink tulips and yellow tulips and purple tulips, and none of them are wrong. They're just tulips. And our brains are the same way. But in some environments, 
one color of tulip is going to thrive and grow more. And I think some brains thrive and grow more in different environments in different ways too. You know, I always used to joke about the reason I left corporate America was because I couldn't work under fluorescent lights. Oh, it's totally. <laughs> but now it's, I realize like that's not a joke. Yeah. <laughs> they buzz, they're bright, they're like, there's a lot yep. going on there. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it was literally like it was a, it was a felt like a physical assault. Yes. So, so let me just ask you a question. And I know, I know there's no 100% right answer, but like if you're, if you have generalized anxiety disorder, if you have chronic depression, if you have bipolar two or bipolar one, are you are you neurodiverse? Is, does mental illness or mental health challenges fall under the umbrella? I think so. I would say I think so, to be honest. One of the things that I really like about the idea of neurodiversity is that it's a self-claimed identity in a lot of ways. So if somebody who has bipolar 2, for example, says to me, I consider myself neurodiverse, neurodivergent. I'm not going to say, no, you're not. <laughs> right. Right. So I do think that it's that sort of the way that the brain is interacting differently or sort of those, I would say, yes, there are people who would say no. Um, but I think that that will change over time. Um, one of the things that I think is important though, is we have to start thinking a little bit about where's the line in some ways, because corporate America is using the word neurodiversity a lot, right? It, it's coming up a lot more. And there's a lot of conversation around if everybody's neurodiverse, who do we actually know needs support and not just like we're making sure that everybody's different and we're allowing for that? Because I think that's just what it should be anyway. We should be allowing for difference wherever we are. But it's the, how do we make sure that we're making space for people to speak up and say, I really can't work under fluorescent lights. I'm, you know, I can work in this room if you turn the lights off, it's great. Or let's put a wellness room into this office so people can take a break and go sit in the wellness room and regroup in whatever way they need to. Or I'm having a really hard day and what I need to do is work from home or have less phone calls or, or those kinds of things, because those are the things that we need people to be able to say without shame. Okay. I My counter to that is why aren't those support? A, why shouldn't everyone have supports? And B, everything you just listed is applicable to people who do not have diagnosable disabilities. And actually, I don't disagree with you. Right. Okay. <laughs> I don't disagree with you at all. I think those are things that should be in place for everybody. That is a hundred percent something I agree with. I think that workplaces should be accommodating in ways that we don't even have to identify that we're neurodiverse because they're actually accommodating for all people anyway, yeah. but we're not there yet. So I think the more people who know they need that, who speak up, the more it gets embedded into culture and the more people who didn't actually know they needed it until they had it are able to take advantage of these accommodations for all and say, oh gosh, this is actually just what a workplace should be. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. 
Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. You mentioned shame. Mm. Do you think that people who are neurodiverse grow up, generalizing here, but grow up feeling ashamed and that it's both internalized and part of our culture? Like, what do you see as the role of shame among the people that you work with? So I first want to say that I make a really big distinction between three words, shame, guilt, and stigma, because I think that they're different. Shame, I think, is that internalized feeling of like, I shouldn't need this help. I shouldn't have to tell people I don't want to be different, and I'm embarrassed by it. Mm -hmm. Guilt is, I don't feel good about asking up for, the, and I'm generalizing too, right? Guilt is, is I feel bad that I'm asking for something different than other people. And this is going to make other people's lives right, harder. Exactly. I, yeah. Exactly. And stigma is sort of that idea that if I come out into the world and say, this is who I am, the world is not going to accept me because we don't accept difference in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think stigma is being broken down in different sectors piece by piece. And I think that's great. I think shame is something that gets internalized over time by people's reactions to you. Mm. And I think what's really cool is, you know, I'm of a certain generation where it really wasn't understood that some of these things actually impact, you know, like that if you can't see a disability, it exists, right? I grew up in a very different generation. My children, two of whom are in their 20s, they are growing up in a generation where they speak up for themselves. They advocate their, it's just part of who they are in their generation. It's like, this is what we are expecting people to understand. So they don't feel the same kind of shame that I think I grew up with. And I'm happy for them for that. I I think that's true. And I think it's not true. I mean, I, I think that, for example, if you're someone and I, you know, I know this personally, if you're someone with high functioning autism, yeah. And you want to exist in the typical world, you're still going to be careful about who you tell. I think that's true. But I I don't know that that's about shame as much. I think that's about self-protection. Okay. Um, And I think self-protection in some ways is about the stigma. Like I'm not going to, and I I know that, you know, my, my 20 year old is autistic and in college doing great and is careful about who he tells. And tells me that it's okay to say he's careful about who he tells. (laughs) And that's because he doesn't want other people's perceptions of what autism is to be projected onto him. 
And that's my worry about corporate America and neurodiversity. You know, and of course, you hear this all the time from people of color who are sort of minorities in their workplace and feel like they have to educate, they have to be the model, they have to be the one. I worry that the way I see corporate materials around neurodiversity feeds into all of this stuff rather than saying, there are a panoply of people here. They've all got something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it, it feels a little, it feels off to me sometimes. Yeah, so circling back to the the decision to move out of, you know, an organization and into consulting on my own, that's part of it for me, to be honest. And, and I'm being vulnerable in saying that to you. It was hard to be the the person who was always having that conversation. It was hard to be the one who was leading the way in an organization for people in the organization to also speak up, right? And I loved doing it. And also, I was tired. I was tired and I want other people to pick up that mantle and start having those conversations. And I want, in a way, I want there not to have to be neurodiversity programs in workplaces, right? Because I think that can reinforce those stereotypes of what neurodiversity can be, where it can fit in the world and those kinds of things. And one of the things I'm doing in consulting is really talking to organizations, talking to clinicians, talking to different sectors about neurodiversity and how they can be more neurodiversity affirming in their work so that it's not the responsibility doesn't fall on me or anybody else to do that work from the inside, that there are ways that that shows up in everybody's space where we can say like, we do not expect you to pick up and become just like everybody else. We accept you for who you are. And I'm hoping that part of what I do in working with organizations and people and companies is really just normalize the fact that we're already here. You know, you don't have to go looking for people who are neurodiverse. They're already in your workplace. So let's give us some free advice here. <laughs> <laughs> Does it start with having an, like, wh where do you start? Where do you start? I guess you start by saying neurodivergent people are all around me. Yeah. I think you start by saying that. And then I think you start by asking are there people who are willing to have this conversation with you? Not expecting, asking, right? Mm. And then I think that there's definitely value to sort of having somebody outside your organization come in and start talking about it. When that happens, I'm amazed mm -hmm. at like a week later, I'll get an email and somebody will say, do you know that like two thirds of the people I supervise came and said to me, like, I think this might be me too. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not surprised at all. I'm not at all surprised because they feel safe enough to do it because you brought somebody in who was talking about this as if it's typical. It's, it's okay. It's just part of what the world is. But I also think it's about listening to the things that are not said to, right? We have a lot of people who will I'm trying to think how to explain this. There are, there are a lot of people who will make excuses for what they're afraid people will judge them for, right? So when I wasn't talking really openly about things, I'd be like, you know what? Um, I'm really tired. I don't feel like going to dinner at this noisy restaurant with all of you. I didn't say it's too much for me. 
I didn't say I'm overwhelmed and I, I need the break. I think there are a lot of people who'll be like, you know, I just, you know, I'm not dressed for camera. I'm not going to put my camera on for this meeting. When they're not saying it's too much for me to focus on the content of the meeting and the people that I'm looking at and all of the things that distract me. And I'm also getting up and pacing because I need to do that to, to concentrate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, you know, that may be a personal example. <laughs> if somebody is continually not showing up on camera, the assumptions we make is, well, well I don't want to, right? Like they're, they're just not feeling right. it or they're just not ready. Like they're, the assumption that, that everybody's working. Or they're on vacation right. and they don't, like they're at the beach right. and they don't want us to see. Or they're in their, you know, <laughs> sweatpants or whatever. Sometimes all of that may be true. And also <laughs> they're, they're not able to put the camera on. I would say other examples before we did a lot of like Zoom and camera kind of meetings are the things where people would call out of work with sort of vague like, I'm just not feeling very well, you yeah. know, and because they really weren't, they mentally weren't feeling well. The challenge of getting to the workplace was too hard for them that day. And maybe even if somebody just said to them, like, what's a, you know, are you okay? Is is there a way we can adjust your schedule to make this easier for you? Those are the kinds of things like are the quiet ways that neurodiversity shows up in your workplace. Yep. Some of them, not all of them, clearly. I have to interject with a with a personal story that I, I literally just realized <laughs> is because I'm I know that I am clearly neurodiverse. I have too many diagnoses to know exactly what, you know, because my diagnoses keep shifting. But when I was when I my last corporate job, second to last corporate job, they were moving moving the office around and they offered me a really beautiful office right next to the managing director. So like the whole boss, mm. the big boss. Which was, I guess, a real honor. Like, I think a lot of people would have been like, ho, 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 I'm, I'm next to the big guy. I said no. And my boss was hurt Ooh. because he had sort of mentored me and brought me in. And I said no. And I, I was in my 20s. I did not have the language to say, this is too much for me. I cannot come in and be surrounded by glass with you next to me every day. I won't be able to focus on my work. And what I did was I actually started psychosomatizing and getting migraines and a wrist injury and like just basically stopped coming into work for about two months, like working from home. I just ran away yeah, and kept my crummy little office on the other end of the building. I don't know if that would happen now. What's different? Um, the world is different. Yeah. And, but I'm different. But that really, really screwed me in that office. It really went around and a lot of people had a lot of opinions about it because I had been sort of a golden girl. I was the youngest vice president in the company. I had this big team, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And all of a sudden it was like, who is she? She's never coming into the office and she doesn't want this beautiful office. What's wrong with her? I hope that wouldn't happen now. Eh, maybe it would. Yeah. I, don't, I know. don't know either. It's an interest, but I, but I think I like that you talk about, I mean, I don't like that you talk about it, but I like that it happened to you. I like that you talk about that psychosomatizing mm-hmm. component of it. Cause I think that happens more often than we, we think about because it's more socially acceptable, right? To be not, not to be sick, but to be able to say, I have a migraine, which is true, which is true because your body is doing that, right? A hundred percent. 
But but the rub is, and here's the rub for people who are listening from from who are hiring, is that I left shortly thereafter. I was the youngest vice president in the company. I had landed a giant account. I was good. Yeah. But I left. And maybe they were glad to see me go, but I have to think part of it is like they had invested a lot of money in me mm-hmm. and a lot of time. And I just I just pieced out. I don't think that's as unusual as it could be, right? I I Yeah. I don't think so. And I think there are a lot of neurodiverse entrepreneurs for reasons like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm, I'm only laughing because yes. <laughs> I mean, there are tons of us out there who are running our own businesses, who are consulting, who are really doing well at it too, right? You can come in and as a consultant and you can do the work that you're there to do and you don't have to worry about the office that you get and you don't have to worry about what what people think about you long-term unless you're a long-term consultant, right? <laughs> and you can shine, you can find who you are and you can really, you know, you can be great at your job. You call it stepping into your own light. Yeah. Yeah. What does, what does that mean though? What does it mean to step into your own light or what does it mean that that we're having to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing is it's like, can we not step into our own light in current systems of corporations and large organizations? Is that just difficult for a lot of us? Or I don't know. I, I hear from so many people who felt like they did not step into their own light until they left a formal institution. And I find that puzzling and kind of sad. I think it's sad. I I feel sad about that. I actually feel like I was able to step into my own light in the organization I was with. And that helped me make the decision to be able to move on because I felt like I have the skills, I have the talent, I have, you know, (laughs) I have the anxiety. I don't know. Like I have the, Mm -hmm. but I also have. Every entrepreneur has to have some anxiety. I mean, it just, I think it's, it's a driver right? It's a driver mm-hmm. for, for us getting our work done. I'm not, I have feelings about whether that's actually a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know that it's <laughs> the healthiest thing, to be honest, that anxiety is a driver. It just is for me. And I, I don't know if I'm thinking about changing that over time, but hmm. I do think that having the opportunity to grow inside an organization made me realize like, I have the courage to build something new and that there's the possibility of stepping into my own light in a totally new way. But I don't know. I don't know how many people feel comfortable stepping up and stepping in and shining if it means it shines a light on the things that they're not sure they want to share yet. Oh, right. And if that has to become part of their identity and maybe they don't want it to be a part mm-hmm. of their public identity. And I don't want it to have to be a part of their identity right? I I want people to be able to thrive and be productive because they are productive, talented people, period. Mm. On the other hand, when you have a thing, (laughs) it is part of your identity. And I actually think that it becomes part of your identity and it can be a beautiful gift to your identity after 
doing a lot of work. I think it maybe it's a choice that everyone has to make. I think it's a choice that people make around whether or not they say out loud it's part of their identity. Because it just is anyway, right? You, you can't take yourself away from those diagnoses. You can't take yourself away from the way you don't know what it's like to be any other version of you. Right. Whether or not you claim it as part of your identity out loud is different than whether or not it shapes who you are. What's your advice for someone listening right now who likes their job in an institution and is like, oh man, I... I just want to have a good job here. I want to advance. I want to stay here. I'm not sure I'm ready to like do all this light shining, but I want this to be successful for me. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so hard to give other people advice, right? Because you don't know the situation they're sitting in. And yet if somebody loves their job, they're doing it well, They have a great relationship or a good relationship or even just a tolerable relationship with the people around them, right? Mm -hmm. And that they see room for growth. They don't have to say anything if they're not there yet. And I think that's perfectly okay. I really do. And I think there, there are definitely people who would disagree with me there. And that's okay too. They can disagree with me there. It's the place where if it's impeding your growth and you don't see growth opportunities, then it's maybe time to sort of reflect and think through, is that anything about, you know, what I need people to know that I'm not sure I'm ready to share yet? Or is that something else, right? Because it's not necessarily the neurodiverse traits that are that are making that the case. But I don't think people should have to disclose or share before they're ready to. Another question, and I ask this from having heard this from from people, especially on the spectrum, I feel othered from the group. I want to be part of the social fabric of my office, but it's harder for me. And that makes me feel really awkward because I like my work, but I don't feel the sense of belonging that I want. I don't go out to lunch with people. That's a hard one, isn't it? Right? It's a hard one. And it's a hard one because in part, to be part of that social fabric, you have to sort of take on some of the traits of the people around you that may not be comfortable for you to take on. But there are also ways to join that social fabric a little bit at a time, right? Maybe there's one person you feel really comfortable going out to lunch with. And that person is more social than you and they can slowly sort of introduce you into the social fabric as who you are and not asking you to change. I will say, honestly, I think that's how I did my career. Um, By the time I left the organization I was working with, everybody knew me. I think they liked me mostly, you know, we got along, we had fun together. I miss them, although I know how to reach them. Mm -hmm. But it was one person at a time that I built those relationships because it was too scary to do it all at once. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, my last question. What are you hearing about hybrid work and the sort of future of work that you're helping companies figure out from a, a neurodiverse perspective? What's important for people to know as we head into this strange era? It is a strange era, isn't it, right? It's yeah. it's a strange 
One of the things that I'm hearing people talk about from the end of the, the employee, right, mm-hmm. is wanting to make sure that when they're in the office is taken accounted for, right? That why they're in the office is taken accounted for and what that costs them is accounted for. And I don't mean time and I don't mean money. I mean, Mm -hmm. energy, right? Mm. What is the energy that it takes me to really function in the office space with lots of other people around and how's that going to affect the rest of the days that I'm either in the office or not in the office. So I really want people to take an account is what are you seeing on the days after you've had people come into the office? Are they as productive as they were the day they were in the office? Are they not? Are they needing a day off? Are, you know, so I really want people to pay attention to, do you see productivity ebb and flows based on how you're doing hybrid? And I think it's worth thinking about what are you seeing and at what cost? Wow, that never would have occurred to me. And actually, one of the pieces of advice I wrote in my first book was that if you're socially anxious or very introverted, and you go through a period at work where you're like, say you work in an advertising agency, and you're working on a big pitch, right? So it's like late nights and all this intensity. After you give the pitch, take a day off. (laughs) Right, right. Give yourself a pause and a break from all of that. So, you know, I used to, we talked about that you do a lot of interviews. I've done a lot of media. And then we, I used to, you know, at one point do like media tours where you, you, you know, it's a campaign that you're launching and it's from six in the morning to like one in the afternoon. You're just doing, you know, like those satellite media tours one after the other. I always needed two days off afterwards because I was so, spent. Yep. But once I was able to say, maybe I can take the afternoon off after this and then a half day the next day, because I'm actually spent from a neurological perspective. I didn't have to take Mm -hmm. the two days anymore. I just had to be able to take like bits of time, but it's exhausting sometimes to really be on all the time. And those of us who are feeling like we're on just in the public, right? That's part of being anxious or you're on all the time. You're feeling like you have to be on all the time. It's harder and it's, it's, um, the recovery is slower. I think. Amanda, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for the conversation. That's it for today's show. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Duke. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family, to all of our guests for sharing their stories, and to our advertisers who bring you the show. If you love The Anxious Achiever, tell your friends. Subscribe, leave a review, follow us. You can also tweet me at MoraAM or find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from The Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.